We aren't told what happened, but imagine with me what took place. Samson probably got up. The Philistine soldiers come for him, and he engages in hand-to-hand combat. He's done it so many times before. Only this time, as he takes his once powerful fist and smashes it into the shield of a Philistine soldier, instead of the shield crumpling, his hand crumples in pain. Perhaps he reaches for another soldier to push him, and he's grabbed from behind, and he wrestles to get free. He can't. His mind is filled with panic. He's thinking, no, this can't be. This is Wisdom for the Hearts, and today we continue our Vintage Wisdom series through Judges. On our last broadcast, Stephen Davey began looking at the life of Samson. We're going to continue his story today. When Samson found himself no longer able to see physically, he was finally able to see spiritually. When everything else is stripped away, he finally understood what really mattered. The question we need to ask ourselves today is this. What might God have to take away from us to let us finally see him? Stephen called today's message, Oh, be careful, little eyes. The story of Samson and Delilah is one of those tragic love stories. It's misguided love. It's also filled with intrigue and greed. It's a story that the box office today would make a movie out of. In fact, it'd probably be a smash. It is a sordid picture that ends with shocking betrayal. The last scene is about to be shot in Judges chapter 16 and following in the life of this rebellious judge. Now, for 20 years, he's judged all by himself. He has lived a life. He has accomplished, however, very little in either unifying Israel or bringing about repentance in the lives of the people. And that's probably because they knew their judge was crooked. He also was inconsistent and immoral. In fact, as we pick the story back up in chapter 16, Samson's activity seems like old news. Look at verse 1. Now Samson saw a harlot there and went in to her. Once again, we're given the subtle hint of Samson's problem. This is the weak chink in his armor that will ultimately bring him down. If you weren't with us last session, perhaps I ought to review briefly just for a moment. Turn back to chapter 14 and notice this common theme. The problem that Samson has with his eyes. Verse 1. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman. Verse 2. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah. Verse 3, the latter part. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. Verse 7. So he went down and talked to the woman and she looked good to Samson. Ladies and gentlemen, Samson's problem is not his eyesight. It's his focus. It isn't the sin of observation. It is the sin of concentration. It is in this man to live, to pursue, to take whatever his eyes see that look good to him. He's unable to control his lust. Tragedy is Samson is already blind here, spiritually. He's already enslaved here, sensuously. 
I think it is more than ironic that his chief weakness is introduced with the words in Samson saw. Samson's first words in the biblical account are, I saw a woman. It's interesting that God will discipline him by allowing the enemy to take away his ability to see. Let's notice what happens in verse 2 of chapter 16. When it was told of the Gazites saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night saying, let us wait until the morning light and then we will kill him. Verse 3, now Samson lay until midnight and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars and then he put them on his shoulders. Now, these gates, if they were constructed in typical fashion, I uncovered in research, would weigh about four to 5,000 pounds. They were wooden, but they were covered with metal plates and the posts as well. So I did a little further research and discovered, to put it in perspective, that what Samson has just placed on his, his shoulders is a, 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 a full-size Buick Park Avenue. I called the dealer to ask him how much it weighed, and he probably wondered, what in the world did I want that for? I didn't ask him about prices. He has picked up the equivalent of Buick Park Avenue. And with a slight hop, he puts it up on his shoulders, and it says that he walks, look at the last part of the verse, to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Edmund. He's going uphill with a car on his back, as it were. <laughs> I think it's funny, all these men, you know, now they're waiting around to attack him, but no one approaches him <laughs> at this point. No wonder. The Gazites are standing there in awe, and now they're looking at this big hole in the city gate, and they're left with a big hole in the city budget, too. What's happening here? I'll tell you. Samson is being deceived, unfortunately, by his sin in thinking he's invincible. Here's the problem. His display of strength came so closely attached to his display of sin. And he is getting in his mind, as it'll be revealed with his story with Delilah, that he is now Samson the Mighty. He is invincible. I can sin, and I can get up, and I can go pick up the gates, put them on my shoulders, and walk off. He has become unaccountable to God, obviously, or anyone else. In fact, I can imagine all the Jews, you know, clapping him on the back, saying, Samson, boy, I heard about the gates at Gaza. You're wonderful. Would you sign my Bible here? Here, right here. Put it under Abraham's name there. You're one of my heroes. He's a super saint. And super saints aren't ever questioned by the rest of us, are they? Anybody ever mention the harlot to him? Trouble is, is he has developed the mentality that he is invincible and he is now a sitting duck for this sweetie named Delilah. Look at verse 4. After this, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek. This is his next event. Whose name was Delilah. Verse 5. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her. They're the five kings of the five city uh, kingdom of the Philistine empire. Entice him, they said. And see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will each, note that, give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That's 5,500 pieces of silver to betray Samson. How much did Judas get years later to betray Christ? 30. She's getting 5,500 in other words, she's getting enough of a nest egg to live the rest of her life in luxury. 
What I also find rather tragic is they apparently loved each other before this happened, which revealed that Delilah had a price tag on her character. And I do want to stop here momentarily to give you two observations of moral failure. Can I give them to you? Number one, moral failure always involves small steps. In other words, it never happens in an instance. You don't fall off a cliff morally. It's more like a toboggan ride. You get on because it's fun and it picks up speed. And sooner than you'd like, you're going too fast to get off. That's moral failure. Samson did not end up in a Philistine jail overnight. He took little steps toward it, beginning in chapter 14. And then you will see him in jail. But it didn't happen in a moment personally believe that the three women mentioned in Samson's life were not the only women in his life. In fact, the scripture records in, in this chapter his visit to Gaza so matter-of-factly that it seems to indicate this was standard fare for Samson, just another event, and a man who has run rampant emotionally and with his passions. Observation number two. Moral failure usually involves relevant, legitimate needs. Delilah's name is Semitic, that is, it's Jewish. She's the only Semitic or Hebrew girl that the Bible tells us he's involved with. And it says that he loved her. This is the only woman it says that he loved. What I find interesting is that perhaps Samson is making an attempt to satisfy a need. He's doing it illegitimately. He cannot have God's blessing, but the need he has is legitimate. You need to realize as well that Samson by this time is middle-aged. Talking about a 50-year-old man. So you need to get out of your picture this man pushing pillars over it. He was a 25-year-old atlas. Middle-aged guy, battle-worn and weary. Scarred from his fights. He has lived virtually alone, that is, without a permanent companion. He has taken on the Philistines alone. We never read any record of anybody ever helping him. He is a worn, I believe, weary man. His strength is from the Spirit of God, but his discernment is diluted by his immoral life. You look at him at the end of his 20-year span, and he is waiting, one push, and he's over. But she represents to him, Delilah, that is, perhaps a final attempt to settle down. It's obvious from the Scripture they live together. Some believe they even got married. At this point in his life, he needs her. Otherwise, he would have run. He should have run. But he chose to stay. Several years ago, a woman walked into my office, a young lady who had fallen in love with a guy who didn't know the Lord, didn't care about the Lord, wanted nothing to do with the Lord. She was a believer. They had become engaged, and she came into my office for my approval as her pastor and counseling to boot. After a little while, I was able to show her from the record of Scripture that God disapproved. She was confronted with the truth. And I told her that what she needed was not counseling, but courage to make the right decision. She would choose either to follow the will of Jesus Christ for something legitimate, something good, or she would choose to marry this young man. I will never forget, she began to weep profusely. She put her head, her face in her hands, weeping, as she understood clearly the choice. And after regaining composure, she looked at me through teary eyes, and she said, I choose to marry this young man. She got up and walked away. Take a look at the choice 
that Samson is making. Verse 6, So Delilah said to Samson, the woman she lo he loves, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. <laughs> Do you notice the cold, almost obvious tactic she uses on Samson? I think her mind is clouded by the 5,500 pieces of silver. A woman in love would want to know how or what the secret was so that she could protect him. She would want to know how it is so that she could, she could make sure that nothing ever happened to it. But look at what she says again. Samson, tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. Samson's so dumb he cannot see through it. He should have laced his track shoes on and said, there's something wrong with this girl. She wants to know what can bring me down. I'm gone. But his discernment is so diluted. What follows in the text is a little cat and mouse game. Move number one is found in verse 7. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh cords, these are bowstrings, that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Chuckle, chuckle. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them, probably while he was asleep, of course. Now, more than likely, Samson is asleep at this point in verse 9. Now she had men lying in wait in an inner room. But she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. Perhaps he wakes up at that moment and he snaps, the text says, the cords as a string of toes snaps when it touches fire. So his strength was not discovered. Now, let me correct here the typical story that I have always believed until I studied this passage. I always believed that the Philistines rushed Samson. He stands up, breaks the cords, attacks the Philistines, and kills them. Waves his hands in the air, and Delilah says, you're wonderful. That isn't all. We never read any record of the Philistines charging Samson. They're in hiding. And when they're assured that his strength is gone, they're not done. And that would be proven by his inability to break the bowstrings. Then they would rush him. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, Samson doesn't know there are Philistines hiding in the closets. He thinks this is one big game. Move number two, unused ropes in verse 11. Same result, he snaps them like a thread in verse 12. Move number three, a little more dangerous. He says, if you weave my hair in this strange fashion, so she does, she ties it to her loom and pin. Verse 13, the same result, only this time she wrecks, uh, or he wrecks her sewing machine. The problem is, though, in this move, move number three, he comes closer to revealing the truth than ever before. He mentions for the first time his hair. Samson is playing a game of Russian roulette. And every time the hammer strikes, the odds mount against him. I remember reading a story written by uh, Erwin Lutzer, recorded by him, the pastor of Moody Church, about years ago in England when, uh, when Oliver Cromwell was Lord Protector of England, there was a well-known circus animal trainer. He was known all around the country. People would come to watch him. And he had these acts. He would perform daring acts with lions and tigers and, and uh, elephants. And he had one, though, that would mesmerize the audience. It was his snake act. He had purchased 14 years earlier a little 7-inch snake, and he had worked with that snake for 14 years and had been performing this daring act with it. One night, the tent was packed with thousands of people. 
came time for that act, and they brought the cage up to the ring and set it over there. They had imitation grass in front of it, and the trainer snaps his whip, and out of that open cage slithers a huge boa constrictor. And it wraps itself around the trainer's feet and slides its way upward until at this particular time the trainer was hardly visible, only a little portion of his face. The crowd went ecstatic, cheering, applauding. But after about 30 seconds, the cheering stopped. Something was wrong. The trainer's face was growing red. Before that audience hushed, so much so that they dared breathe, they heard the unmistakable sound of bones breaking. Before anyone could rush to help him, what was once a seven-inch snake now crushed its trainer to death. You want to know what Samson is at this point? He's a man who thinks the serpent is trained. For 20 years, he's allowed it to slide up his body. He's barely visible, and he still thinks it's a game. Take a look at the next move, verse 15. Then Delilah said to him, How can you say... I love you when your heart is not with me. Samson should have said, how can you say you love me when you keep trying to tie me up? You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. And it came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him, that's pressured him, that his soul was annoyed to death. And finally, it's as if he said, okay, okay. I'll tell you. Verse 17. So he told her all that was in his heart, and he said to her, A razor has never come to my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. No, that's not true, Samson. He's missed the point. He has come to the point and place in his life in which he has become like a Philistine. The Philistine had charms that were blessed by their idol priests, and they would take those charms into battle. And when they would win the victory, they would give the credit and the benefit to their lucky charm. Samson never mentions the Spirit of God. He never mentions why. But he says, if you take away my lucky charm, I'll lose my strength too. Notice verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, in other words, she's the discerning one here, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up at once, once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. Verse 19, And she made him sleep on her knees. In other words, this was one night she was going to catch Samson off guard. And when he was asleep, she called for a man, verse 19, and she had him shave off the locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. That is, she probably pushed him out of her lap. Verse 20, and she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. And the most tragic phrase in the whole story now follows. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. There is nothing more tragic than a person who loses the power of God and doesn't even know it. Let me ask you a question. If the presence and power of God were to leave this church, 
How many Sundays would it take for us to realize we were functioning on our own strength? If the power of God's Spirit left your life, how long would it take for you to discover that you're operating in the flesh? A week? A day? An hour? God's Spirit has left Samson and he doesn't even know. Samson, you're on your own. Nonsense. My hair's gone, but I'm still the mighty Samson. We aren't told what happened, but imagine with me what took place. Samson probably got up. The Philistine soldiers come for him, and he engages in hand-to-hand combat. He's done it so many times before. Only this time, as he takes his once powerful fist and smashes it into the shield of a Philistine soldier, instead of the shield crumpling, his hand crumples in pain. Perhaps he reaches for another soldier to push him, and the soldier doesn't budge. He's, he's grabbed from behind, and he wrestles to get free. He can't. He bellows. His mind is filled with panic. He's thinking, no, this can't be. But it is. Samson, God's left you. Notice how the scriptural camera slips into fast motion in verse 21. Then the Philistine seized him, They gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza where he'd earlier been with a harlot and bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison. How the mighty are fallen. Verse 22 tells us something interesting, not that his charm is coming back, but it tells us that God has not abandoned Samson for good. In fact, it gives the reader this editorial note that God's power is still available, but Samson's going to need to ask for it. What happens to Samson in prison, and I'll prove that with his prayer in a few moments, is that Samson comes face to face with his sinful life and repents. And he begins in that prison a relationship with God that should have taken place as a judge in Israel. But Samson really doesn't have a whole lot of time to develop this newfound relationship because he begins to hear the mob chanting, We want Samson! We want Samson! Where is he? Bring him out! Why? Because in verse 25, it so happened that when they were in high spirits, they've thrown this party for their god Dagon, that is. They're going to give him, the fish god, all the glory. So they begin to chant for Samson. Call for Samson, verse 25, that he may amuse us. We're having a party. This is wonderful. We're going to look at the great hero of Yahweh, and we're going to show you that he is nothing compared to our god Dagon. And by the way, Whenever a leader falls, the world still throws a party. Why? Because it gives their false gods greater credibility. And it drags the true God through the mud. All the dignitaries are here. The five kings, their wives, all the rulers of the Philistine Empire have assembled, which, by the way, is interesting because they're about to lose their leadership which will set them back. This would be akin to the President of the United States and the Vice President and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Congress, Senate. All of them gathered under one roof. They're all amusing themselves with this middle-aged blind man. They're confusing him. They're pushing him around. They're taunting him. They're forcing him to be led painfully by a little boy's hand. This is all that God, your God, can do. And they sing a chant to their God, Dagon. Samson finally has enough, and so does God, by the way. And Samson prays a prayer, and it's for God's honor and for his own vindication. It's It's only the second prayer that we have recorded that he prayed, verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, 
Oh, Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me just this time, O oh God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. This prayer reveals two changes in Samson's thinking. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one, it reveals that Samson is repentant from his life of sin. Samson not only is repentant for the first time, but he is also dependent on the Lord for strength. That is, he recognizes his source of strength is not in his hair, but in his God. He says, O oh Lord, please remember me, verse 28, and please strengthen me just this time. Samson, for the first time in Scripture, can see with discernment. I find it so intriguing that when Samson can no longer see physically, that he finally begins to see spiritually. When everything else is stripped away, he understands what really matters. Can I ask you another question? Is there something in your life that God has taken away or God needs to take away for you to be able to clearly see him? A job? A spouse? A child? Those are the things in your line of sight. It is no coincidence, ladies and gentlemen, that Frank Sinatra's hit song entitled, I Did It My Way. You heard it? That is the song that has been recorded by more artists in America in the last 20 years than any other song. Why? Why is it such a hit? Because it is so close to our human nature. We like to do it our way. Samson has been for 20 years doing it his way. And he's about to lose his life. Look, let's finish the story. Verse 29, And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. Do you think Samson has any idea that the strength is within himself at this point? No way. It's either God or not at all. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. In other words, God, use me one more time. I'm willing to die. I'm so desperate to be used by your power. And he bent with all his might, and the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Ladies and gentlemen, Samson was restored to some position of power, but he was not restored to the same position of power. He was supposed to be a judge. One of the things that God brings to our awareness time and time again are the consequences that we pay because of our sin. Samson's hair began to grow back, but his eyes never did. He toyed with sin for 20 years. The Bible makes it very clear that sexual temptation, immorality, is a sin or a temptation that we are not to toy with. We are not to flirt with. We are not to debate with. We are not to dialogue with. Paul makes it clear we are to run from it. This is Wisdom for the Heart. We're in a vintage wisdom series from the book of Judges. Stephen called today's lesson, Oh, Be Careful, Little Eyes. We'd love to learn how God's using this ministry to build you up in the faith. 
Our mailing address is Wisdom International, P.O. Box 37297, Raleigh, North Carolina, 27627. Let me give you that again. You can write to us at Wisdom International, P.O. Box 37297, Raleigh, North Carolina, 27627. Make plans to join us right back here on Wisdom for the Hearts. 